0: Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Abdu Murray. Well, what a joy and a privilege and a blessing it is to be with you this this Sunday morning. Thank you, PT, for offering this this day for me to to share. Um... uh, You know, it's interesting. I was sitting there and I was listening to the worship and um, I was talking to Dave earlier this this morning as I got here. And oftentimes when I uh, speak, I often will have like, you know, a specific progression of an argument I want to present. And I I don't mean an argument in the sense of this dry philosophical thing where I want to yell at you or something like that. Uh, What I mean is, is that I want to make a point, is that I want to show, maybe prove something through the scripture, through the evidence and that kind of thing. And I have none today. I don't have one. I don't have a point. I don't, well, I'm not trying to make a point other than the point I want to make, or at least the thing I want to say is, is, is I want to make this an act of worship. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today is the incomparable nature of, of God, of who he is in the Bible. And as I was talking to Dave about that, he says, you know, that's exactly what we should do. He's worthy of our praise and we should be doing that. And then as I was listening to the worship, um, it occurred to me, and you're going to find this out as you... Here, what I have to offer, or at least offer to you today, is that um, this will be an extension of that worship, that literally the songs we heard. And I didn't know the songs they were gonna play. Um, I sent over the scripture verses as is typical. You send over the verses so they can put them on the screen. And none of the verses that I sent will actually be uh, verses that are related to the songs that were played today. But I'm gonna talk about verses that won't be on the screen that are related to those, so- those songs in a way that um, I have a hard time believing there's a coincidence there. So um, I'm gonna open in in a word of prayer, uh, just because there's something about memory of those who have sacrificed and uh, the greatness of that act of love uh, that might incline our hearts and incline our minds to really focus on the, the greatest sacrifice ever ever made by the greatest being that ever exists. Um, and offer this as an extension of worship. So Father, we ask you to bless this day, Lord, and may this, uh, these words I share and these things that people hear um, honor you. May they honor your son, Holy Spirit, will you make this an extension of the worship we just heard? Because every, every message given by every pastor this Sunday, whether in different time zones where Sunday is almost a memory, or uh, this time zone where Sunday is just beginning. May every pastor, may every speaker, may every person who shares the gospel today and shares about you do so as an act of worship and may that happen in this very place today. So my theme is incomparable. Oh, amen, by the way. Um, (laughs) It's gonna be a long prayer. It's it's gonna be (laughs) the rest of the service. Um, my theme is incomparable about the God who is incomparable. And as I start this, I want to start something. So give me a second here because it's going to be a little philosophical to start off with. Because sometimes the philosophers, the God of the philosophers, as sometimes he's called, is oftentimes a God that seems dry and like, I don't understand how is this worshipful. But if you'll give me a second. I want to get there because I think it relates to the scriptures so powerfully and so beautifully. So... Uh, Uh, Some time ago, there was a philosopher named Leibniz, and Leibniz was this wonderfully brilliant man who spoke about how you can actually prove God's existence by the fact of existence. The fact that we exist at all is actually proof that there must be a God uh, at all to begin with, because he said, look, there are two kinds of things in the world. There's only two, well, there's a lot of categories, but the two biggest categories are these categories. There are things that are called contingent things. In other words, they, they, they exist but their existence is explained by something else. came before them or something that causes them to come into being. Every one of you is a contingent being because you owe your existence to someone else who existed before you. Your parents, for example, and your parents, of course, owe their existence to someone who came before them. The very chairs you're sitting on are contingent things. They owe their existence to someone who designed and manufactured them. But even the particles that make up the chair owe their existence to something that came before them. And as you go back with all these contingent things, they go back, and this one explains that, and this one explains that, and you keep going and going and going until you have to end somewhere, because you can keep going and going and saying, well, God created everything. Well, who made God? And I know this sounds like a real argument, but it's actually a little on the childish side, but it's a legitimate question. It's like, well, who made God? Because you get to the point where you end up with a non-contingent being, Everything else is contingent. Everything else owes its existence to something else until you have to stop at some point until you get to what's called the necessary being. A necessary being is a being that explains itself. It needs nothing else to explain its existence. And there's different ideas about what that might be. But the one necessary being that could cause something that has power and intelligence to create the universe we see around us and can make choices, that being must be God. And so the argument unfolds where if you have a universe, and the universe is contingent, we know this from science, it began to exist at a finite point in the past. Whether you believe it was a long time ago or a short time ago, basically the science tells you it began, all matter, energy, space, and time began to exist at some point in the past, which means matter, energy, space, and time can't explain themselves because they weren't around to create themselves. So something outside of matter, energy, space, and time has to exist to create matter, energy, space, and time. And so the necessary being that exists to create those things has to be immaterial, not made up of stuff, has to have more energy than the entire collective energy of the universe, has to be a spaceless being and a timeless being. And I submit to you, there's only one person who fits the description. This is incomparable. Now, when I say incomparable, I don't mean just, yeah, there's different views of God and all of them believe that God is this necessary being that, that you know, always eternally exists and all these things because that's not how many cultures, whether existing today or in the past, have thought of God. They have thought of God in sort of these primitive ways. We perpetuate even today sometimes as either this gray-bearded thing up in the sky, whether it's a guy or a woman or whatever it is, Who throws lightning, holds hammers, whatever it might be, is your perception of these demigods, because they're not really gods, but these demigods, that comes from a misconception of it all to begin with, because the Greeks believed believed that the titans and the gods emerged. They didn't always exist. (coughs) They emerged from the ether of the universe. The Babylonians believed this, about Marduk and all their gods, that they came and they emerged from something that existed prior to them. That thing wasn't personal. They just emerged from this. The Bible doesn't describe God this way. The Bible doesn't describe God as an impersonal force from which other things seem to pop into existence no, the Bible describes God not as one who emerges from the ether, but God, the Bible describes God as the one from whom the ether came. Right he is the one who is the seat of all of existence. Everything owes its existence to him, and he owes his existence to himself. Now, that is incomparable. There is nothing like that in any conception of God in the past or in the present. He is incomparable in this sense. And so when you say God and you think of something Zeus-like, that's not the God of the Bible. That is not the necessary being. The God of the Bible gives you this. Beautiful description, incomparable description of who God is. And Leibniz is simply saying that if there is a necessary being, well, sorry, if there are contingent beings and the universe itself exists, that's undeniable. Here we are to talk about it. And that must be explained. The best explanation is the necessary being and that being is God. Now, that's a complex philosophical argument. I could go on and on about it if I wanted to. But here's what I want to tell you about the incomparability of the God of the Bible, is that God takes this entire argument and many versions of it that others have had, whether it's Leibniz or other folks who have had this version of this uh, argument to show that God actually exists as a necessary being, the one in whom all existence hangs. And God, being the efficient one, the Lord of language, the one who creates the world that we even speak about in the first place, he takes this entire argument and thousands of years before anybody even thought of it, he reduces it to one word. That's efficient. And when does he do it? He does it in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses says whom shall I say has sent me? And he says I am that I am. I don't think we ever appreciate the depth of the name. You know, you have names in other religions for God, you have polytheistic religions that name certain gods, you even have uh, pantheistic religions that say that everything is God and they give a name to it, whether it's the, the Brahman or whatever it might be, but this name, Yahweh, or however you pronounce it, because we don't know exactly how to pronounce it, because all we're given is the... Um, Uh, the Tetragrammaton, the yud heh vav We don't know exactly in Hebrew how to pronounce it, but we know what it means. It means I am that I am, or I am who I am. God is telling Moses that I'm not just a God, like Ra. I am the seat of all of existence. I am that I am. That is literally the best name you could come up with for yourself if you are the cause of all of existence. You simply are. And I am that I am. I don't need to be explained. I am, I exist in myself that I am. That's a, I mean, do you understand the the beauty and power of this name? And he tells this to Moses. But what does he say before he even gives that? He's not just simply saying, I'm this lofty creation, this this lofty creator who exists outside of time, space, and all these things. I'm not just this lofty thing, this impersonal being. What does he say before he gives his name? He says, I am the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gives Moses tradition. Now I want you to think about how beautiful this actually is because what he tells Moses is, I am the God of your fathers personal to you and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And who's he telling this to? He's telling this to a man who's born a Hebrew, raised by Egyptians and surrounded by their gods. And he says, you fled Egypt because you murdered someone. You don't know who you are. You've become the shepherd among the Midianites but I am the God of your ancestors. I am personal to you. I am your God. I am their God, but I have seen and I've woven my actions throughout all of history to this point where you're looking at this bush that is on fire but never consumed, this bush that is and cannot not be, in that moment at least. And he's talking about who God actually is. That's remarkable. It is an evidence of God's incomparable faithfulness. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of a future and present hope. And you jump forward thousands of years to when Jesus actually quotes this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 32, when he's talking about the resurrection and the Sadducees are basically saying, there is no resurrection. After this, it's over. No one comes back to life. That's, uh, it's done. There is no afterlife. That's what the Sadducees believed. And Jesus is saying, do you not know the scriptures where when Moses asks who God is, God says to him, I am the God, I am. The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. In other words, what he's saying is, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ceased to exist, if they were dead and could be no more, their souls are gone, their bodies are gone, he would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I can't be their God anymore because they don't exist. God is not the God of unicorns because unicorns don't actually exist. And if we stop existing at death, then God can't be the God of the dead because they don't exist at all. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of future and present hope. One of incomparable faithfulness. It's marvelously incomprehensible. It's marvelously incomparable. And here's the great part of that story is that when Moses... Sees how beautiful and how amazing all of this idea of God's being a necessary being and the God of all hope, the God of tradition, a God who creates the entire universe and yet condescends to talk to Moses in this cave with this bush. Moses is completely undone by this whole the eloquence of it, by the eloquent efficiency of God, which takes all these concepts, puts it in his name, and when he says, who it, who I am that I am, Moses can't handle it. He just can't handle it, and he trembles. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent like you just are. Can you imagine being undone by that, by being told God's name, and you realize his name means that much, and all it is is this short statement? He says, he's undone by it. I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. Since you have spoken to your servant, he suddenly realizes Even if I was eloquent, not compared to what I just heard. Who am I to speak for you? But I am slow with speech and tongue. And then God says to him, Who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind, is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and this is the faithfulness of God, the incomparable faithfulness of God. He reveals this majesty to Moses that Moses' mind cannot possibly comprehend in its full measure, and he's now undone by it. And God tenderly tells him, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You fast forward, and there's Jesus, God incarnate, walking the earth. In John 8... There's this whole tradition thing going on. Remember, God said to Moses, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And basically, Jesus is contending with those who are saying, who do you think you really are? You know, you're probably the illegitimate child of a Roman soldier who maybe has raped your mother. That's kind of what the context is, by the way, in John chapter 8. And and Jesus says, they're saying they're the the child of their father, Abraham. And he says, no, you're not the child of that guy. You're the child of somebody else. The illegitimacy is bantering back and forth. And then Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and and was glad. If you were really children of Abraham, you would be rejoicing by what you see because Abraham rejoiced because he he was told ahead of time. This would be my day. And he he would rejoice and was glad. Then they get mad at him and they say, how can you say you're not yet 50 years old and you're saying that you saw Abraham? Who do you think you are? And then he says to them, they ask the same question basically Moses asked with a different heart. And then he says to them the same answer that God gave to Moses, I am, before Abraham was, I am. Now, do you see how amazing that is when you take Exodus chapter 3 and John chapter 8 and you realize something? Is that when that name is being spoken, it's saying, There is an eternality to my name. And then Jesus says, Before Abraham, before Abraham existed, I am. Time is wrapped around my finger because I'm the creator of it. And he's personal. He takes their tradition and now he's saying, it isn't just God in some ethereal bush and some ethereal place where our forefathers actually knew him. I am the God of your present. I am with you right now. You're literally seeing the image of the invisible God. That's a a remarkable thing when you think about the way in which John, uh, who penned that gospel, who recorded that encounter, And he begins his book by saying that, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So beautiful is this idea of the incarnation of the timeless one, the one whom all existence owes itself to. The necessary being is now in a contingent body, and yet transcends. He's both necessary and contingent at the same time. That's remarkable. So much so that Augustine, well, St. Augustine, depending on who you ask how to pronounce it, says basically this, He's paraphrasing essentially John 3.16. He so loved us that for our sake he was made man in time, although through him all times were made. He was created by a mother he himself created. He was carried by by hands he himself fashioned. He lay in a manger, a, a, a babe in wordless infancy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. He lay in a manger, In wordless infancy, he, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. That's amazing. Because that's the way it actually is. That's the way it actually is. That's the beauty and the power and the incomparability of our God. And yet we praise him and we worship him. And we say things like this, and we even said it in the songs. That's why I feel like this is an extension of the worship service. I really do. I I, I very much do. So we make phrases. We say phrases like this. And this is a good phrase. Don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing the phrase. But I want us to really soak in the impact of when we say this. We sang it and we say it. He is worthy of our praise. Now I want you to think about it just for a moment. When we say he is worthy of our praise. When I praise someone... Let's say my kids, they do something and I praise them It's because they won my approval. They did something. I mean, I love my kids, no matter what they do. I'll always love them and I'll always cherish them. But typically when we praise somebody, it's because they did something that we approve of. A Nobel Prize winner will go up there in Sweden and he'll be there with his medal on or her medal on and address this hallowed hall, so to speak, of people in tuxedos. And they give him a Nobel Prize. Why? Because he or she proved themselves worthy of this prize that men are giving. Praise is something men give. So wouldn't it be odd if the creator of everything, the one in whom existence all things hang, is worthy of our praise? How is he worthy of our praise? It's almost like, oh, you're worthy of us. Great, we approve. You're worthy of of my praise. The The reality is is that we're blessed to praise him at all. Now, I'm not saying that phrase shouldn't be said. I'm saying let's soak in what it really means. His worth, is beyond our praise, we're lucky to be able to do it at all. We're blessed. You see, in the Christian conception of who this God actually is, praise is humble. Not as one who sits in judgment or approval to deem God worthy of our praise. It's as if he won some kind of prize that he is desperately looking for. No, praise is an action and an expression of our posture Towards him it orients us to him, not him to us psalm twenty two verse three we 've heard this plenty of times before, uh, and in the kJV in the King James version, it says that yet you are holy, sorry, it says that you inhabit our praise yet In the ESV, it actually says "Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So in one version, and I think this is fine, it says you inhabit our praise. That's quite beautiful, actually, because it means that the spirit is actually guiding us to that praise so that our praise is something he can be worthy of, not because we do it, because God himself is the one who gives us the unction to praise him at all. But the way that the, the, the verse is translated, yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel means that your praise is something that he sits on. Not because it's, it's dirty or whatever it is, it's because this establishes me as king. Yet this is the same God in Psalm 22. Same Psalm. Psalm 22, verses 24 to 26, the one that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one that Jesus actually quotes while he's dying on a cross. Who reveals the tenderheartedness of God towards those who are afflicted. Those who are downtrodden, those who are broken. Whether by their own devices or because of somebody else who did it to them. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. From you comes my praise. That's why it's worthy. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. I have no segue into the next point I'm gonna make, but I'm gonna say this. All of this basically coalesces into this idea of incomparable divine beauty. When you read these words, and you think about the import of the name of God and who he is and how you define the the very idea of his existence and who you are in relation to him, there's this awe that should should, should overtake you, that should become this thing where praise is something that you don't even choose to do. You just do it. It's like your natural reaction, like a sunflower following following the sun. It doesn't choose to do that. It just does it. It is your natural response. The spirit is in you to follow the sun. And that beauty is there. You know, I was thinking about God's beauty, and a friend of mine, his name was Alonzo. He actually was did a, did a, a little video series on God's beauty, and I thought it was really something. And I, he got me thinking about God's beauty in a little more of a, a of an in depth way. And it occurred to me. You know, we have this phrase, "Beauty is in the eye of the beholder." What it basically means is that beauty is subjective, which isn't exactly true, but it's mostly true. I mean. You know, a face only a mother could love kind of a thing. Um, I've got a face for radio, for example. Um, There's this idea of, of beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But because God is the objective seat of all of reality, because he is the one from whom all reality actually flows, which means that all beauty, whether subjective or not, actually flows from him who is the creator of all things that we deem beautiful or ugly, because he is that seat, that means that there is actually an objective seat to beauty itself, but here's the kicker, is that God is the one in whom all beauty, from all beauty resides. He is the source of all beauty. And this is the beauty of that, is that when you see something and it's beautiful to you, you can talk about how wonderful it is. You know, oh, look at this painting, look at this thing, whatever it might be, this flower, my bride, you know, whatever it might be, you talk about the beauty of that person or that thing, and it doesn't do anything for you other than fill you with awe for the object you're beholding, but here's the beauty of God, is that God is the objective seat of beauty. Of beauty. He's so beautiful that beauty's not in the eye of the beholder, you become beautiful because you behold him. When you look at a painting, you say it's beautiful and someone else might appreciate it because you appreciated it, but that's not how it works with God is that he is so it's like when Moses saw the glimpse of God's glory, Moses started to shine because he was sort of overtaken by God's beauty. In other words, God beautifies the beholder. Incomparable. Incomparable in his existence. He's also incomparable in his wisdom. Incomparably, his wisdom. You know, God has answered our questions and many of our challenges before we've even asked them. If you just read His Word, you'll see that. Maybe you've heard me talk about this before, but <clears throat> the engineers here might know this. Uh, this field of engineering is called biomimetics, and a friend of mine, a biochemist named Dr. Faz or Fazal Rana, talks about this about how people actually solve modern-day engineering problems by looking at the animal kingdom and how they actually do things. So if they need to figure out how a motor or should work or something should actually propel itself, they'll look at single-celled organisms. And there's this thing in a single-celled organism called the flagellum. And the flagellum is this little tiny tail that whips this little single-celled thing around to get food. But the tail is so efficient, it's actually, a, if you look at this, a, 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 a microscope through it and you'll see, it's got a little sophisticated motor with actual gears actual gears. And if you see a picture of how uh, DNA uh, is duplicated through messenger RNA, it looks like this little creature dancing and carrying this thing along, and it begins to duplicate itself. It looks like a machine system. In fact, so good are these machines that we believe are created by blind evolutionary chance that our engineers, our brightest minds, look to those as examples of how to actually mimic biomimetics, how to mimic those things so we can solve our engineering problems. How is it possible that our finest minds are unlocking the secrets to engineering by looking at mindless chance? (laughs) Yet this is the incomparable wisdom of our God, and he tells us this thousands of years before we discovered it. When you read Job... The oldest book of the Bible, by the way, the first one written, not the oldest recording, recording, that's Genesis. But one of the oldest books of the Bible is Job. And in Job chapter 12, verses 7 to 9, he describes biomimetics before we even think of it. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fishes of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this?" Incomparable wisdom. And then the incomparability of the divine heart. You know, there's a lot of, I mean, I don't need to tell you, there's a lot of social issues today that we have, we deal with, but we don't deal with them with with the right heart. Yes, we seek justice and we should but we don't always deal with each other with a divine heart. What a contrast, what a contrast to the divine heart, our heart actually is. You know, I think about some of the issues we're facing today, and I think about the uh, the inequities we see in the world, and I see how Jesus actually deliberately dealt with them. He didn't incidentally deal with some of these things we think that we're, you know, we're, oh, we can shoehorn the Bible into this area, you know, whether it's women's rights or it's uh, racial tensions or whatever. Jesus is not, you know, I'm talking about this, but you can get this out of it. He's not doing that. He's actually telling you, I'm deliberately talking about the inequities you see in your world in a time when inequity was way, way bad, way worse. So you take a look at the story of Mary and Martha. And there's so much to get from this story. Mary and Mar- the story of Mary and Martha, if you're familiar at all with it, basically Jesus comes to Mary and Martha's house and um, uh, he's coming, bringing his disciples and it's going to be like basically a big party that's going to be thrown. And um, Martha is worried about Taking care of stuff, she wants to make sure the food is ready and the dishes are washed and the place is clean and all this stuff and Jesus comes with his disciples and Martha is about the, about the work of making sure everyone feels like a good middle Easterner. she wants to make sure everyone feels like they 've been treated with hospitality, so she 's busy at work, but Mary is not Mary is sitting at jesus 's feet listening to what he has to say now this is interesting because oftentimes the message and it 's valid is that take the time to get away from the busy work. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about much things, but only one thing needs to be basically worried about. Mary has chosen what is better. In other words, to learn about the scriptures and to sit at Jesus' feet is better than to be busy all the time. And that's a good and valuable message to get from this. But I don't think we clearly always see the societal impact that this story actually has because Martha and Mary were in a very patriarchal society that basically said, women belong in the kitchen and nowhere else. They were denied education all the time. To sit at a rabbi's feet was not something a woman was ever entitled to do back then. And Martha is so acclimatized. She's so used to this. She's so ingrained in a society that it oppresses her that I don't even think she realizes it. So what she tells Jesus is that she says, Jesus, don't you care that I'm doing all this work? Tell Mary to come and help me. In other words, put Mary in her place. Martha is so used to being put in her place she doesn't even know she's doing it to Mary. And Jesus says about a woman and about Martha who have been denied an education Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her, not even by you. You deserve an education, Martha. You deserve an education, Mary. Long before we had movements that were seeking to expand women's rights, Jesus was saying, this is a right you have just by virtue of being a creation. He teaches us his heart. And Then you see his heart and it's answer to the objections in the parables. Let me go through this one relatively quickly. You know, sometimes we read Jesus' parables and we see the obvious teaching there, but all of them are just thick, just thick with truth, just thick with it. I want to read the parable of the banquet, found in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. Bear with me, because I'm going to read the whole thing, uh, because every part of it is really important. Um, and, you know, this one speaks to me because... Uh, if you can't tell, love language, my love language is food. Um, it's certainly um, the, the language with which my wife often expresses her love for, for people. Uh, we make this joke: is that you know, through apologetics, I try to love people up here in their mind, um, uh, and Nicole loves people with their stomachs, um, and then we meet together in the heart, um, in the middle. Um, but this is why this parable stands out to me. So there's this parable of the banquet. Now there's always been this objection to Christianity that it's intolerantly exclusive; only Christians get to go to heaven, everyone else goes to hell, and it's terrible and it's exclusive, and you shouldn't be, you know, this is this is awful. You shouldn't you shouldn't uh, believe this religion because it's so bigoted and exclusive. But Jesus actually responds to this in this parable, among many other things, he teaches us. So the parable begins like this. Now Jesus is at a basically at a party, and he's giving teaching. And when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, He said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, but Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please excuse, have me excused. You don't buy a field and then go see it. You see it first and then you buy it. This is lame. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Didn't you do that before? Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. I don't even know what that means. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. Why? Because that was lame. And the reason why it was lame is because they were depriving themselves of something. And he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The part I want to focus on is that my house may be filled. God is not trying to say, this is the club I want, everyone else is out. I want my house to be filled. It is an inclusive invitation to the exclusive means of salvation which comes through the cross, but he's not trying to keep people out. He's trying to invite as many people as possible in. The objection to Christianity is that it's been intolerant, and he answered it 2,000 years ago. He wants his house filled with you. His invitation is universal, but his method is exclusive. There's only one way, and it's through that cross. You know, I'm reading a book by a guy named Dane Ortland. Maybe you've read it. If you haven't, you should. It's called Gentle and Lowly, the Heart for for Christ, for Sinners and Sufferers. And read it slowly, bite by bite. It's worth your time. He points out that Jesus, and he, he spends quite a bit of time on this verse. In Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, he points out that Jesus, though sinless, identifies with our struggles and our sins. You know, Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now there's a lot to unpack in that and we're not gonna do it all today. All I wanna do is point out, Dane Ortland points this out, that the words, the word sympathize, comes from two Greek root words, The word sin, S-Y-M, which means co, or with. And "patheo," which is passion, or suffering. So Jesus doesn't just say, oh, you poor thing, you're suffering. He suffers with you. He is your co-sufferer. Now, he is sinless. And this is the beauty of He chooses to suffer with you, though he is sinless. And he feels it. He feels the strength and the force of the sin, because... He is tempted in every way, in every respect, yet without sin. What does that mean? Just pause for a moment and think this, is that if you were covered in grime, covered in filth, and you have filth coming out of you, you're just this disgusting machine of just this, of this filth, and someone throws more dirt on you, or you throw more dirt on yourself, are you going to feel it that much? But what if you're pure? What if you're absolutely spotless and clean, And then the filth is thrown on you. You feel it more. So Jesus just doesn't identify with our suffering and the temptation because he's like us. He is, you know, made in the image. He is a man. He does have a body. But because he's sinless, he actually feels the temptation stronger than you feel it, Ortland points out, because he is pure and can feel it. A dead fish going on a current can't really feel the current but a fish that can swim against it knows how strong it actually is. This is the heart of God. Yet he deals gently with us, Ortland points out. He deals gently. He is lowly and gentle. Now he is a judge. And Ortland points out this beautiful phrase. He says, there is no one to whom Jesus will be neutral. You'll either be judged because you've chosen that, or you will be dealt with gently because you've chosen that. and seeing and submitting to that gentleness. What a contrast to the way we act towards each other. What a contrast. Even when we're wronged, we seek, we seek vindication. So this is word vindication. Vindication basically means to see someone who's been wronged, to acknowledge the wrong that a person has actually experienced. And justice flows from vindication. And vindication is a sort of uh, a result of justice because you see and acknowledge the hurt. But then there's a similar word, a very similar word that has the exact same roots it's vindictive. And vindictive basically means revenge. Now, revenge will happen. Vengeance is the Lord's, but it's not ours. But Jesus still deals gently. And this is his incomparability of his heart with regard to human history and human existence. And I'm gonna close with this and we'll be done. History is punctuated by those who have given their lives so that others might die. History is also punctuated by those who have given their lives so that others might live. We're memorializing that today and tomorrow. Only one has given his life so that all might live eternally. Enemies and friends to transform them. Jesus has punctuated human existence with a cross-shaped exclamation point. And the final finality of this is that his incomparable draw, who he draws, and tenderly, even those who don't believe in him. There's this pull, there's this tug, there's this, I mean, I can tell you, nine years I searched and I didn't want to believe in who the God of the Bible actually was, but he tugged and he tugged and he tugged, and there it was. I want to quote from, for you a poem written by Jean Murray Walker. The strange little poem, because first of all, it doesn't rhyme, but second reason is because it's actually an appreciation of Maxim Gorky at the International Convention of Atheists in 1929. She she believes in God, but she's doing this poem in appreciation of Maxim Gorky at the International Convention of Atheists. This is what she says. Like Gorky, I sometimes follow my doubts outside and question the metal sky, longing to have the fight settled, thinking I can't go on like this. And finally I say, all right, it is improbable. All right, there is no God. And then as if I'm focusing a magnifying glass on dry leaves, God blazes up. It's the attention, maybe, to what isn't there that makes the notion flare like a forest fire until I have to spend the afternoon spraying with the hose to put it out. Even on an ordinary day, when a friend calls and tells me they found melanoma, complains that the hospital is cold, I still whisper, God. I still whisper, God. God, I say, as my heart turns inside out, Pick up any language by the scruff of its neck, wipe its face, set it down on the lawn, and I bet it will toddle right into the Godfire again, which though they say it doesn't exist, can send you straight to the burn unit. Oh, we have only so many words to think with, she continues. Say God's not fire. Say anything, say God's a phone maybe. You know you didn't order a phone, but there it is. It rings. You don't know who it could be. You don't want to talk, so you pull out the plug. It still rings. You don't want to talk, so you pull out the plug. It still rings. You smash it with a hammer till it bleeds, springs, and coils, and clobbered up bits of metal, yet it rings again. So you pick it up, and a voice you love whispers, hello. We run, and we run, and we create excuses, and we conjure up ideas of who God is, and we say, I don't believe in that God, realizing almost no one else does either, until you come to see that this God who's been calling, calling you to the God fire, the fire that did not consume the bush, it called out to Moses. This incomparable God calls you. As I just bring this to a moment's close, all I want to say is this. I don't have a point is at the point to him. There is none like this one. There is none like him. Whatever you're worshiping that's not like that, it's not worthy of it. But he makes you worthy to praise him. And if you don't know him, I invite you to him. And if you do know him, I invite you to a richer experience of him and I invite myself. I invite me to, that. I need a richer experience of him every day so remember, we memorialize so many who have given of themselves. Let us never forget that their sacrifice was made possible by the one who sacrificed for them. Let's pray and then we'll close. Father, we are so grateful for your son. We're so grateful for time. We're so grateful for matter. We're so grateful for energy and the space you create. We're so grateful for who you are and by what you are, the very nature that you are who you are. And you are that you are. And that you give. That your wisdom is incomparable. That your heart is incomparable. Lord, conform our hearts to look like yours. Help us to see our shortcomings, and they are many. Help me to see mine, and they are legion. Help me to see your son's blessings, because they are more yet. May we leave here in awe of who you are. never forget. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday, everyone. God bless you. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.